Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to the next episode of Mike Up with Cairo. You've got Tim and Brandon here after a long Monday of seeing patients in the fall. You know what that means. Everybody's back in town for the holidays. Your schedule gets confused. And most importantly, it is 5 o'clock in the morning here on a Tuesday. What can Tim and Brandon talk about that's going to be exciting for you? And I think we did it. I think we have a podcast today that's going to be exciting. We're going to talk about some of the most common pains in the butt. This one's all about you. We're going to talk about some MD marketing and something big in the profession you don't want to miss. It's going to be at the end of the episode. Make sure to stick around for that part. This episode is going to go after our most popular podcast, which is, do you know what it is? I do not. <laughs> It's, it's don't be a hypocrite. Essentially, as Kairos, we work on the back and the neck all day long. And why wouldn't we? That's where most of people's symptoms are, number one and number two in MSK care. However, the hip can be either compensation or the etiology for a lot of those back complaints, or they can be their own specific entity. And that's what today's about, is to start to sniff out those uh, those common mimickers that we see uh, manifesting in the hip that unfortunately you, I, and which we'll talk about, medical doctors don't recognize. So how can we use this to our advantage, uh, both for our profession and also for our patients? Yeah, but first, what's happening in practice that you're probably ramping up thinking about what am I going to do to market my services this year? How do I make that more efficient? And that's something that kind of always stumped me in practice. I thought, you know, how, how do I put it together... It doesn't take a lot to stump you. <laughs> how do I put together a, a complex marketing plan that addresses all the issues? And then I learned that really simpler is better. That if you focus your efforts on one thing, you're going to have a much better result than dabbling in a whole bunch of things. And through the years, it's been really clear there are two things that we need to focus on. Number one is encouraging more referrals from patients. That starts with their new patient experience. It moves into what type of care is delivered. And then keeping in touch with those patients that once their, their care may end, we want to let them know we're here the next time. So sending out an e-newsletter e and social media posts. And the second arm of an effective marketing plan is PCP marketing reaching out to the MDs and, and primary care providers in your area to let them know what you do. So that's what we're bumping up right now. One of the things that we've used to help us refine those efforts is a survey that we did a number of years ago. We went out to PCPs. We surveyed about 100 of them in their offices during lunch. We had PCPs who loved us. We had PCPs who would never refer to us. And we asked them, why wouldn't you refer to a chiropractor? There were four main reasons, and I'm not going to go through those right now. We have a blog, so if you if you listen to our podcast and don't subscribe to our blog, visit KairoUp.com. It's free. You'll get a weekly blog, and one of those that you'll want to check out is four reasons why MDs don't refer. Um, we do have MDs who refer to our area, and we've worked at that uh, from a number of perspectives. Number one, just trying to provide good care for each patient in addressing those four concerns, making sure that we release the patient in a timely manner, that we communicate with the PCP, and that we demonstrate those outcomes to the patients. We demonstrate those in the initial reports and the release reports, so sending those out is crucial, and then going out and dropping in for a lunch periodically. 
when you're at the lunch, there are a few things that you don't want to talk about, and that is you. You need to talk about the PCP. And when it's time to talk about you, make sure that you refine your your pitch as to wherever the MD is standing on the issue as far as what they believe you're able to treat. Try to take them one step further, not 10 steps further. So let them know initially you're good at treating back pain and treating neck pain and whiplash and headaches. And then as they become comfortable with that, we can move into rotator cuff and tennis elbow and all the things that you and I know that we do have an advantage of. Things that don't work are the letters behind your name. They don't care about the letters behind your name. They don't care about your degree. What they care about is are you going to take care of their patients and get them in and out of pain in a quick period? You know, there's two things that I think that you glossed over there that I learned from you the, the first time that I came in and shadowed you. And I was it the pain in the butt thing? Because <laughs> we did gloss over that. Um, the two things that, that Tim does really well, that's about two, there's not much more, um, is that when he does an initial examination with the patient, uh, the initial consult, he will look the patient in the eye, set all of his notes down, and then repeat back to the patient everything the patient just told him, which is an impressive moment uh, for that new patient. Because one, memory-wise, uh, clearly uh, since dementia setting in, he probably can't do it as well. <laughs> However, um, it, it tells the patient that we're listening. So I would highly recommend consider doing that. Maybe it doesn't have to be every word, but at least repeating back to them so they understand that you understand what they just said. Uh, and the last one is a call. You know, After that first visit, uh, going back to uh, the, the patients you saw that day and saying, who are the new patients? Or who, or who are the people I haven't seen in a while, uh, especially the, the new patients, and saying, uh, hey, you know, calling them after the day of work. Uh, just saw you today. Uh, did you have any questions for me? And, and kind of answer any kind of hesitancies or any questions they may have. Because unfortunately, in your in your waiting room and then in your office and then in the treatment room, they maybe weren't able to speak up or maybe they left with questions. And what we know from patients is the reason they don't come back. Patients don't come back is because they don't understand why they have to. So if there's any questions that are lingering, make sure you uh, make yourself available to, to answer those questions, to make sure the patient's comfortable with you and also your process in your office. However, let's talk about a little bit about this MD marketing thing. Uh, because 15 years in, I find that I'm talking about the same things with these MDs every single time I go in, which is about every six months I see a, a doctor and I've got stats for them on what patients I saw and what percent better they are and what we did with those patients. However, this last year, Dr. Brown and I, Dr. Brown is the other chiro we have in our office and we do these lunches and we decided to do a little something different. We started to do a little five-minute lunch and learn. Why not? That's what the pharmaceutical reps do. Let's take five minutes of time and not waste it with just talking about the weather and golf. Let's actually give them some useful information. So what we started doing um, is to, to pick a topic, and what we're going to talk about is one of those topics, ischiofemoral impingement, that probably was the most common one that we talked about. And it really positioned us as a thought leader, it positioned us as a problem solver and positioned our office as, hey, when something's not quite going right, uh, consider sending them to us. So really what we did is we presented a case to them and said, you know, we all have these patients. These patients have this chronic buttock pain. It's going on the lateral thigh, maybe the posterior thigh, maybe even sometimes going down past the leg. And it's not really screaming a muscle problem. We all think it's a sciatic nerve issue, uh, yet we treat them for the sciatic nerve issue and they're not quite getting better. They're often um, sitting off to one side, maybe even leaning to one side, but 
man, we go do those lumbar spine films. We go do the orthopedic examinations. We poke around and the back just isn't the answer. They're, they're, we're not actually reproducing any chief complaints. And unfortunately, this patient is kind of left in limbo. And, and as you know, and, and I know, most patients always go to the worst. They always think they have cancer. They always think they have you know, some rare disease they found on TikTok. Um, however, when we really dive into the research, what we find is that this deep gluteal syndrome uh, has two main components. Um, one being ischiofemoral impingement and the other being piriformis syndrome. Now, the most common cause of hip pain, and if you want more information on that, is actually um, uh, uh, gluteal uh, tendinopathy. There's a whole different podcast and many blogs on that, so please dive into that. But once you start to get a nerve symptom, so deep gluteal pain and nerve symptoms, this is one of the, uh, the, the key things that's going to lead me down to the issue of femoral and piriformis syndrome. So um, what we'll find with the issue of femoral impingement is this non-discogenic, uh, this atypical hip and thigh pain. They're not really having a, you know, that, that anterior groin pain with a FADIR and FABER test. And they have this deep butt pain. And unfortunately, nobody's able to do what we're going to do today, which is to reproduce it. Yeah, so certainly could be uh, ischiofemoral impingement, but it could also be a piriformis syndrome. So piriformis syndrome, we, we know that uh, another cause of deep gluteal syndrome, of pain in the butt, comes on when the piriformis is too tight and it compresses the sciatic nerve that lives right underneath it. Well, that compression in the nerve, that's one of the two things nerves don't like, compression and stretch. Compression causes ischemia and congestion and local inflammation and eventually radicular complaints along the distribution of that nerve. And some, some people think, there have been studies that said that piriformis syndrome contributes up to one-third of all back pain. So this would be one of the top things in our diagnosis for discomfort in the buttock traveling down into a sciatic distribution. And we don't want to dive too much into the back things. If you want to go into understanding what uh, a discogenic pain or maybe even a, a DJD, a, spondyl, um, a spondylosis type pain as far as the lower back, dive into Chiro up in the condition reference section. Those are going to be our, our slump tests, our SLRs, WLRs. Um, I use Milgram's tests a lot. Um, I, I Actually, I, I like uh, PA shear tests also. But really, you're really looking at location, you know, as far as um, what where the, the pain is being presented with each one of those orthopedic examinations or where you're poking. But man, when all these tests are negatives, our typical SLRs, WLRs, and not really lighten someone up, uh, that's when you can dive into functional examinations. You can test the hip abductors. You can go into directional preference, which I highly recommend doing. Um, but when all those things are negative for your, uh, in this case, what we're thinking is as far as a radiculopathy, um, we're not reproducing any kind of reproduction of pain going into the butt. That's when we want to look further. Now, whether you use imaging, whether you just ask more questions, whether you do blood work, whatever it may be, um, I think that that's where we have to maybe not do, do a trial of care, but if everything is negative, let's go to the next tier. And the next tier will be looking for a peripheral neuropathy. And some of those peripheral neuropathies happen in the butt. Yeah, certainly one of the most common is piriformis syndrome. We know that the piriformis muscle comes off of the, the lateral aspect of the sacrum, and then it travels over to the greater trochanter. The sciatic nerve travels right underneath there, and when there's tightness in that muscle, it can potentially compresses that nerve. The piriformis muscle is kind of an odd muscle that it does a couple of different things. When the hip is extended, it can externally rotate and help a little bit with flexion. But when the hip is once flexed, then it assists with abduction. So it has kind of a complex uh, set of biomechanical responsibilities. 
One thing that is consistent though is that the sciatic nerve is very close. Sometimes the sciatic nerve can travel through the muscle, especially a branch of the sciatic nerve travels through that muscle in up to one-fourth of the population. So that's a good chunk of our patients. And if you have a combination of a nerve that's traveling through a muscle and a tight muscle, you have problems. And those problems are going to refer into the buttock and thigh and down into the calf. Now interestingly, the piriformis, uh, the sciatic nerve doesn't really supply the cutaneous sensation to the buttock or upper thigh. The reason that a patient with piriformis syndrome gets discomfort in the buttock and upper thigh is because within that same area, you can compress the inferior gluteal vein, and that causes congestion and edema, which then causes those symptoms. So even though it may not supply the upper buttock and thigh, most of the time our patients with piriformis syndrome have pain that starts in the buttock and then travels all the way down, however however. Uh, distinct that compression is. So going off topic, I always hate to do, I mean, it is early in the morning here on a Tuesday. I'm not going to lie to you, but I'm going to put out something. Uh, so if you did get buttock pain, cutaneous symptoms in the buttock and iliac ridge, what are we looking at? <laughs> We're looking at this podcast just got five minutes longer. <laughs> <laughs> probably a clunial nerve entrapment that we know that the clunial nerves start uh, up in the Okay, that's enough. You're on a tangent now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they emerge off the thoracolumbar rami, and then they travel beneath the thoracolumbar fascia, and they emerge over the iliac crest. So if we have pain, maybe three finger breaths uh, uh, lateral to the sacroiliac joint that the patient just jumps off the table when you hit their iliac crest, and the pain travels down into their buttock, then we want to think about a potential clunial neuropathy. And I know that we have done some blogs on that. Certainly in Cairo, if you look up main syndrome and clunial neuropathy, uh, if you're not diagnosing that, it's responsible for a big chunk of back and especially buttock pain. So that's something to take a little deeper dive into. Yeah, one little pearl that maybe I just made this up, to be honest with you. Um, however, I, I see this a lot as far as it, with, with main syndrome. However, if you dive just below that iliac crest and then you get in the muscle belly, you'll find a lot of trigger points in that gluteal tendon. Um, so, you know, it's kind of location, 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 which is what we're talking about here, that unfortunately, you know, we can't just say everybody has deep gluteal pain because the treatments are a little bit different and, and what's what's actually causing that pain. Um, so let's let's dive back into this. You know, as far as uh, where else can you sci uh, get compression of the sciatic nerve, and most importantly, um, I think is the issue from moral space uh, is a, a space uh, between the lesser trochanter uh, of the femur and also the ischial tuberosity. And unfortunately, this is not a very big space. Now, uh, if you look at it with a person with a neutral spine, neutral hips, it's about two centimeters, so not very big. But as you can imagine, if you just abduct your leg, you can make it significantly bigger. Or if you adduct your leg, you can make it significantly smaller. So there are other things that can cause um, that space to get smaller. Uh, you can have a congenitally narrowed issue from oral space. You can have any kind of vascular abnormalities. I'm sure there are some space-occupying lesions that can happen in there, but most common we're going to see some adjacent muscles causing some issues. Maybe you have a hamstring strain, a gluteal muscle um, hypertonicity, and there's also the gemelli obturator internus complex. So there's a lot of things happening in that area, but really 
for the diagnosis of impingement syndrome, when it comes to that ischial femoral space, we're looking at one specific muscle being the quadratus femoris. Now, this is a very small muscle. There's really no tendon associated with this muscle. When we see no tendon, we're not seeing any kind of elastic abilities, the way to uh, contract or store energy. What we know is this is a torque muscle. This is a muscle responsible for hip stability. And what we'll find is those patients with less hip and hip, uh, hip stability, maybe they're overusing their hips or maybe they just don't have enough butt muscles, uh, that things pay the price. One being the piriformis, which is an option. Uh, the other one being this, this quadratus femoris. And then unfortunately, when we start to ex uh, experience this reduction in space, that's when we're starting to get compressing uh, the sciatic nerve and also subsequent edema and why your patient's coming in, numbness, pain, tingling, achy. Yeah, that numbness, ting, ping, uh, achy, and uh, tingling in the buttock can come from a lot of different things, especially the discomfort. So using our palpation skills is what's going to help identify this to a large degree. That if, if right now, if you touch the top of your greater trochanter, that's really where the gluteus medius tendon inserts. So most of the time, somebody who has pain on the outside of their hip, it's going to be gluteal tendinopathy. In fact, one-third of our back pain patients have gluteal tendinopathy. If you now uh, migrate your fingers to the center of your sacrum, and not so much the center, but the, the middle portion of the lateral edge. So just get on the lateral edge of the sacrum and then trace your fingers down, back down to that greater trochanter. If you stop midline, that's about where the piriformis would be compressing the sciatic nerve, midway between the sacrum and the greater trochanter. Now, ischial femoral impingement is not far off. If you drop your fingers down to the ischial tuberosity, and then move them just an inch or so laterally toward the greater trochanter, toward the hip itself. That's the, just rolling your fingers just off the edge of the ischial tuberosity, that's the ischiofemoral space. That's where the quadratus femoris lives, and that's where the, the sciatic nerve is potentially getting pinched. So certainly in the lumbar spine, underneath the piriformis, or down into the ischiofemoral space, any one of those is a potential culprit. Yeah, and that's that's one of the biggest things with any kind of diagnosis is the location. Um, how do you? Uh, in fact, I'm not going to ask you. I'll just tell you how I do it. Um, so, as far as palpation, I do this all side lying, and I do this side lying for one. It's easier on me. My patient, my table goes up, and I'm able to palpate it better. Um, however, I do like the side lying position for most of my hip diagnoses because you can manipulate the hip, not actual manipulation, but you can move the hip in different locations, whether it be through abduction, you can move into flexion, internal and external rotation to get a better feel for what's happening in that space. So something to think about. Also, when you're in a sideline position, uh, you can get into those muscles and um, and find where that, that problem may, may lie. Uh, before we dive into the etiologies, before we get into what these patients look like, what they smell like, how they're going to present in your office, first, a word from our sponsor. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. ChiroUp helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code PODCAST15 for 15% off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. All right, let's dive into 
Who gets ischiofemoral impingement? I have three main types of patients that they're going to uh, come in with ischiofemoral impingement. We have our one-butt drivers. We have our lazy Susans. And we have our skinny Daves. And you're going to imagine uh, which one of your patients fit in these categories. Uh, one and two are somewhat similar, but are one-butt drivers. These are people who sit for long periods of time. Maybe they're a pharmaceutical rep. Maybe they're a truck driver. Uh, maybe they're just sitting at work all day long, but they sit on one butt. And unfortunately, nerves don't like that. It's always intriguing that we think about nerve compressive problems, uh, yet we for forget about the things externally that can cause nerve compression like sitting. So unfortunately, that can cause issue of moral impingement, uh, subsequent edema of the nerve, and, and symptoms. Uh, also, our lazy Susans, when they just sit for long periods of time, they're sitting at a desk for long periods of time, whether it's for work or for just pure being lazy, uh, getting on TikTok or scrolling through their phone. And then finally, skinny Daves. Skinny Daves are, you, you know this Dave. This Dave has no butt. Uh, you've got this patient, and he or she um, has no gluteal muscles. And unfortunately, that's probably not the cause of their symptoms, but due to that lack of gluteal um, musculature, due to the lack of hip stability, it creates a myriad of issues in the hip, one of those being issue of femoral impingement. Now, we do have a couple specialized populations that can have um, issue of femoral impingement. I just had an increased rate. We have rowers. Uh, we have ballet dancers and race walkers. That's you, That's you, Tim. Yeah, I've seen you with your headband and your ankle weights. And these are people taking excessively long strides. So the hip is going very far behind midline. Uh, obviously important for running and race walking. However, unfortunately, uh, does decrease that issue from world space. You know, that, that's, that's an interesting description. One-butt drivers, lazy Susans, and skinny Daves. I think we all really have to, have to show our appreciation. I'm sure this took you to the edge of your mental capacity to come up with those three, so we are grateful. That was open AI. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. The whole thing. Uh, so who gets piriformis syndrome? Who gets this pain in the butt? Well, it can happen traumatically, certainly if you fall onto your buttock. That can cause some, some damage to the nerve. Not overly common because it's somewhat protected by the gluteus maximus, a big thick muscle. Uh, sometimes catching yourself from a near fall, if you really have to engage the hip stabilizers, those muscles are going to tighten up, including the piriformis. But most of the time, it's something that happened repetitively. Repetitive microtrauma, like long distance walking or climbing stairs or hills or chronic compression, like sitting on the edge of a, a hard surface, sitting on the edge of your chair, or a wallet. I remember a patient, uh, this was probably 10 years ago. He had deep gluteal syndrome and uh, a lumbar, a coexistent lumbar problem, some significant degeneration, as most of our patients with peripheral neuropathies have some sort of a double crush. And I treated him. He wasn't getting better. It was like the fourth. Typical. <laughs> it was the fourth visit. And uh, he came in. I said, how do you feel today, Phil? And he said, I feel a lot better. And so I was getting ready to put on my Medal of Honor and my little uh, good doctor badge. And he said, my neighbor told me to quit sitting on my wallet. And I realized, why didn't I tell you to quit sitting on your wallet? That that was one of those subtle ADL pieces of advice 
that I had overlooked. And of course, that was what was contributing to his ischemia. And once he took that out of the glass of stressors, the glass was no longer overflowing and his symptoms were getting better. One of the big things as far as who gets piriformis syndrome is people who have weak, weak hip abductors because if their gluteus medius isn't keeping their pelvis aligned and keeping their, their leg and frontal plane alignment when they're walking and squatting and moving, other muscles have to kick in to do that. And one of those other muscles is the piriformis. So a lot of times this is somebody who just has some sort of a functional deficit that's overworking that muscle and their lifestyle may be contributing even more. These patients don't like to sit or stand in one position for longer than a few minutes. They start to squirm. They oftentimes have increased discomfort when they get into situations where they need to contract the piriformis, walking, running, stair climbing, or chronic compression like sitting in a car or sitting in a workstation. And any activity that engages the muscle, which would be internal rotation, or sitting cross-legged, that's going to exacerbate the, patient, uh, the symptoms. And sometimes that pain gets so intense, the patient will start to walk with a little bit of an antalgic gait. One of my worst patients with piriformis syndrome was a, uh, she worked in the mall, I forget which, which store she was in, but she was a hip rocker. Like she would stand, but she was swayed back and forth. Like she was almost like rocking a baby. And that was tough to get away from. I mean, we can all think we're the best manipulators, manual therapists, exercise givers in the entire world. But if you don't fix the problem, you know, if you don't fix the activity, unfortunately, it's going to keep on happening. So let's dive into the diagnosis because we can think whatever we want to think. We can all have our own opinions, but we can't have our own facts. And that's why we use orthopedic testing is to actually go through and say, okay, let's, let's actually um, expose uh, the tissue that's irritated and find out what's going on with tissues given way. And that's how we're going to develop our pathway to treat them. If we just blindly give people diagnoses because that's where the pain is located, uh, but we don't actually confirm that's what tissue is injured, then unfortunately, um, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, guessing there. Uh, orthopedic examination, just like Dr. Burlesman said, is uh, pushing on it, pulling on it, making it work. And there are two great ways to do that for issue of femoral impingement. Uh, and there's also one other subsequent thing that you can do, but we've already talked about it. It's called put your hands on it. Uh, palpation. Uh, whenever you can palpate the area and you can find exactly where you're, um, you're uh, getting symptoms from and you can reproduce that chief complaint, that's a that's a feather in your cap, you know. So uh, palpating the uh, the attachment sites, the ischium, lesser trochanter, uh, and then also, you know, forcing a little bit of hip extension and some adduction to see if that reproduces someone's symptoms. And that's really what the, the orthopedic tests are for. So the first orthopedic test is the long stride walking test. Now, there are two ways that you can do this. I'm going to give you the first way, which is um, you and your patient uh, leave your office and take a nice little 20-minute jaunt around the office. And you guys can talk about the weather and, you know, things happening overseas. Uh, that's okay. And take a long, fast walk. But not many of you and I have too much time to be doing that. Instead, what you can do is you can put your patient in the position of taking a very long stride as they're taking a really long step when they're walking. And if that can reproduce that patient's chief complaint, sensitivity, 92%, specificity, 82%. So uh, very sensitive as far as uh, looking for, does this reproduce my patient's chief complaint? Uh, the next is the ischio femoral impingement test. This is going to look a lot like Ober's test when we're looking for an IT band syndrome. But essentially, you're going to have the patient side lying, affected side up. You're going to bring the leg 
all the way up into abduction with the legs uh, straight, so the knee straight. Once the leg is fully up into abduction, you're gonna bring the entire leg back into extension, hold it there for a second, and then slowly bring it down into an adductive position. And really what you're doing is um, uh, taking that issue from all space and narrowing it. Now sensitivity, 82%, so uh, about the same, uh, but specificity also about 85%. Uh, so it's really gonna significantly help um, uh, between the long stride walking test and the issue from all impinger test. Those two in conjunction, um, we're, we're looking like we have uh, that impingement uh, versus the other types of hip pains. Yeah, those are some, some pretty sensitive and specific tests, pretty useful for us. And the good news is that ischiofemoral impingement test, you're doing one of the piriformis tests in there as well. Remember, the BD test for piriformis syndrome is having the patient lie on their unaffected side and then abducting their leg uh, up off the table several inches. When they abduct their leg, they're engaging the piriformis muscle. So this is the first part of the test that Brandon just described, the issue of femoral impingement. If it hurts to lift your leg and hold it there, it's piriformis syndrome. If you now drop that leg all the way back down into that overtype position where it's hanging behind the opposite leg, and then the pain is worse, that's issue of femoral impingement. You've brought the ischium and the uh, greater trochanter and the femur closer together, and you're pinching that sciatic nerve. So the BD test is one useful test for piriformis syndrome. We can also look at the patient that patients often have a slightly externally rotated hip. When they're lying on the table, their feet are flaring out just a little bit. When they're walking, their feet are flaring out. That gives us some indication maybe it's a little bit too tight in the piriformis. And certainly uh, limited passive internal rotation. When you go to stretch that, it's uncomfortable. And it's important to note where is that pain. Because our patients who have hip osteoarthritis, their top finding is going to be painfully limited passive hip internal rotation. So does it hurt in the groin crease? That's suggesting something acetabular. Or does it hurt out over the buttock and into the distribution of the sciatic nerve? That's suggesting something that's probably more related to piriformis and soft tissues. And finally, uh, the, the FADIR test. FADIR test gives us fairly good sensitivity and specificity for piriformis syndrome. So taking that patient's leg into flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. Yeah, looking at you know, really in all those tests, when you get those true negatives up in that 82 to 85%, uh, that's a good sign because the hip is one of those things that I find that when I do Faber test, I mean, it's, it's positive for almost everything. Um, so while that's good, I'm not saying don't do Faber test. Um, however, that kind of gets us in the location. Then we need to look for those true positive tests to say, okay, yes, I'm in the right area. Now, how do I isolate that specific tissue that's injured? So those are some great tests. Now, with us trying to tell you how to do an orthopedic examination through the audio waves is probably not the best platform. Uh, take a look at the videos in Chirop. We have in the clinical evaluation section, you can see every orthopedic examination. Everyone you never even thought you needed to know is on there. However, specifically for each diagnosis, everyone you need to know is on there uh, to make sure that you have a good vid video demonstration of how to do each one of these tests. It is not going through a series of 50 orthopedic examinations for each patient. If I did more than three to maybe five orthopedic examinations per patient, that's a lot. Do you know more than three to five? That's it. I'm looking at them right here. <laughs> Uh, really the art of orthopedic examination is to not have to do many. So your, uh, your history taking, 
your physical examination are all ruling out the things that you don't have to do, and then using the appropriate orthopedic examination to rule in or rule out the associated differential diagnosis. So hopefully Chiropt can help with that. That's one of the main things we hear after one of our seminars. So after one of our seminars, you know, you give a 10-hour, 12-hour talk on the lumbar spine, and people from the diagnosis on will know exactly what to do. I mean, imagine having a, a resource that now, if you have plantar fasciitis and you know that's a diagnosis, you know exactly what manual therapy, what instrument-assisted manipulation, what exercise are gonna get you the best results. That's, that's actually very evidence-based and simple, you know, uh, toolkit, you know, recipe to follow. It's getting to the diagnosis that some people have uh, difficulties with, not for the most common ones. We all know how to diagnose lumbar spine disc lesion, but when it gets into these things, making sure you have the most appropriate orthopedic examination will help you and your patient help solve the problem. Treatment protocol. So what are we going to do for issue of femoral impingement? And actually, I was... I was on YouTube looking for other ideas for ischiofemoral impingement, just other new things that are out there. And I had a lot of people calling it ischiofemoral impingement. I'm not saying they're right and I'm wrong. I'm just saying I never heard of that before. So if you do hear ischiofemoral impingement, don't be surprised. That just means the Brandon was wrong. I'm from the Midwest. We're allowed to have a couple of things we say funny. Uh, so what are we going to do for issue of femoral impingement? Um, good thing about this is a lot of times the myofascial release, the manipulation, and some of the exercises are married together for both of these diagnoses. So myofascial release, you know, clearly we're going to be stretching out the piriformis when it comes to piriformis syndrome and the quadratus femoris for the issue of femoral impingement. But we can also attack those agonists, the hamstrings, and the gluteal muscles for both the diagnoses. And then sciatic nerve releasing and sciatic nerve flossing. Now, this is going to be location dependent. However, we can absolutely 100% look at where are these nerves getting held up, and then we can use a sciatic nerve floss. You can do that seated, you can do it supine, and you can do it sideline. All those videos are extremely important for you to understand, but sending your patients home with sciatic nerve flossing for each one of these diagnoses is going to be critical to, one, get them out of the problem, but also reduce symptoms pretty fast. Yeah, so if you have a patient who has ischiofemoral impingement, they can't take a long stride, which means that their terminal hip extension is limited. That means that in order for them to walk, they're going to be loading their facets. In fact, greater than a 30% increased load in the lumbar spine with an IFI patient. That means that facet that's overloaded is going to become inflamed, which is going to become sticky, which is going to become stuck. So we need to make sure that we're addressing those joint restrictions in the lumbar spine, in the sacroiliac joints, and throughout the hip and pelvis. We also need to identify the things that are perpetuating that patient's problem. In a piriformis syndrome, we're looking for the functional deficits of foot hyperpronation and spinal instability, hip abductor weakness. Those common diagnoses that are perpetuating our patient's pain and if we don't get rid of them, we're probably not going to solve the problem long-term. We may relieve the symptoms short-term, but that's not value. Value means resolving those symptoms. In management of the piriformis syndrome, we also want to make sure that that patient is not sitting with their legs crossed for prolonged periods of time. Also not sleeping with their legs crossed, one leg scissored in front of the other, and avoiding any prolonged compression of that, that area, sitting on the edge of a table, sitting on their wallet. So... What I need to know from you, Dr. Steele, are what are the best exercises for a patient who may have one of these diagnoses? Uh, it's the Jane Fonda Buns of Steel workout from the 1980s. Uh, actually, it probably wouldn't be the worst thing 
in the world. Um, however, yes, we're going to attack those hips. Uh, and I have a little bit of a cheat because my last name is Steel. So I always tell patients they're going to have buns of steel when they're done with this. Most of them will not. Um, however, they're going to be sore. And that's one of the most interesting things about the hips is you can take an athlete who's very athletic and can run a marathon. But when you start to really isolate these gluteal muscles, they're going to be sore the next day. Now, a lot of people work the, the, the gluteus medius maximus in isolation. So how can we do that for both these diagnoses? We're going to progressively load them. Now, when I say that, and that I say progressively load and not start here and end here because every patient is a little bit different. You know, our, our skinny Dave and our, our, I forgot her name. Oh, what was her name? Sally. Uh, Lazy Sally or, um, you know, Dave and Sally, unfortunately, they probably need to start off with some clams. Um, they also need to probably work into some clam with a band and they may end there. They're not looking to jump fences and play basketball. Uh, our other patients who are trying to get back into athletic activity, we can start with clam, but they're probably going to get into advanced clam and really into some, uh, some lunging or squats. I love the double posterior lunge. The double posterior lunge is not in many of our protocols, but I use it all the time. The posterior lunge is actually better, which is a single leg uh, posterior lunge. That is a phenomenal exercise. I love getting all my patients into that, but I find that having to start with two legs and work into one leg is where most of my patients live. Now, where do my patients live? They live in the Midwest. They are not the uh, the San Diego, Denver, Colorado type. And that's just, it is what it is. That's my demographic. If you have a different demographic, you can probably start there and maybe work in a side plank with abduction and maybe even some heel squeeze exercises. So depending on where your patient lives and what their, their goals are, you can kind of move them along that chain. We in ChiroUp start with the clan, go to clan with the band. And then in our phase two, we go to post your lunge, which I would, this would be an opinion and again, that's the 90 to 95% of patients we're seeing in your typical um, generic chiropractic. What, what, what are we called? We're not, uh, we don't see all athletes, but we see some athletes. What do athletes. I call you? We can't say that on the podcast. <laughs> what we can say on the podcast, though, is we need to start our patients exactly where they live. That if we want to give that patient the best exercise, which would be a side plank with abduction, of which about 4% of the population could do properly. Have you tried it before? <laughs> yeah. Um, we're not going to video that one, though. But the side plank with abduction, challenging. It's the best exercise. It's what the EMG research has said is the most potent exercise. If you give that to Sally or Dave, there's little chance that they're going to do it properly. And even if they do squeak one out, they're going to do it with compensatory gait patterns. So all you've done is made that patient's bad movements stronger. That's not a benefit to the patient. So we want to give them, meet them where they are, give them something simple like a clam or a clam with a band. If they're already a college athlete, maybe then we can give them an advanced clam or a side plank with abduction. But we want to make sure that we give them not more than two or three exercises uh, when we start out so that that patient uh, is doing something that's attainable from, from a time standpoint and from a physical standpoint. The other thing that we want to make sure is we give them the home advice I needed to give Phil the advice about not sitting on his wallet. So I had now 100% of the time, don't miss that. And it's not because I remember, it's because Cairo remembers. I make sure that I prescribe a condition report for that patient. As long as I can make the diagnosis, the, the ADL advice is going to be incorporated in there. So my patients get better 
and they have means by which they can do their home exercises with the descriptions and with everything that they need to make them an active participant in their recovery. I hope that this information was valuable to you today. By all means, dive into the condition references if you'd like to learn more about the lumbar radicular complaints or the peripheral neuropathies from clunial neuropathy, ischiofemoral impingement, or piriformis syndrome. All of the best practices that are up to date are in those condition protocols in CairoUp.com. And if you want more podcasts like this, you can check out our library and make sure that you follow us along the way. Check us out next month. If you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it with a friend or a colleague who you think might be interested in the same type of information. This podcast is all about pushing our profession forward, and you can help that by spreading the word, and we would be very grateful. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit CairoUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.